It's very, very nice. <laughs> Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Canyon AT4X. Friedman Merrick Delich with you once again. Coming up on this podcast, we will talk about the Philadelphia Flyers situation. Marty Walsh talking to agents, the draft lottery, Connor Bedard, Mike Sullivan, Gabriel Landeskog, Mike Babcock, the games on Tuesday, but Elliot up first, a game that could change a significant NHL franchise forever. Game four, the Panthers look for a sweep against the Maple Leafs. And if they complete it, cue the chaos. That's later on tonight. On the pod on, on Monday, I talked about how there's an overriding feeling of shock that less than two weeks after beating Tampa Bay, all the goodwill is gone. And I've spent a lot of the last 48 hours trying to figure out exactly what that means. And the best answers that I can give you is that anything could happen and no one would be safe. And beyond that, I don't know what else there is to say. You know, we just came out of the draft lottery. And as you mentioned, we're going to talk about that. Yep. And we discuss how the draft lottery is a franchise-altering night in the NHL. Wednesday night could be a franchise-altering night for the Maple Leafs. And one of the conversations I was having today with people was, what's acceptable out of this? Like, if the Maple Leafs win Wednesday and they lose Friday, that's not going to be good enough. But if the Maple Leafs win Wednesday and they win Friday and they put a battle towards the end of the series, and who knows, maybe they even win it. But what's going to be acceptable now? Like, if they go to seven and then lose, are people going to say, okay, they gave it a great fight? Or are people going to say, forget it, they blew it early, and that's all that we remember? And the most important thing is how the ownership views it. And I don't think we have a good answer on that. But the one thing I, I think we all do know is that if they lose Wednesday, there are major consequences. And someone said to me, well, I've heard this before, and this is different. Now contracts are up. Like we always talk about how in certain places – the clock is ticking or the bill comes due. We're there with Toronto now because contracts are coming up or people have to be extended. And now you're in a position where you actually have to make decisions on the cornerstone people or the executives. And they haven't been in this situation before. So this is different. And what happens Wednesday could be a major factor in determining where these choices go. Like you have thought a lot about this and what are the scenarios and what is acceptable. And here's my thinking on it. My worst case scenario for the Maple Leafs isn't that they lose on Wednesday, Elliot. My worst case scenario is that they win on Wednesday and they lose Friday at home. The visuals, the sound of that rink, 
the emotional reaction, not just in the rink, but in the city of Toronto as well, as you know, will be overwhelming. Yes. Agree or disagree? I agree with that. I understand exactly what you're saying. If you lose on Wednesday, the anger doesn't come in the arena. No. It's kind of a nod to what I was just talking about a couple minutes ago. What is the result in round two from here that saves you from embarrassment? Well, yes, win. But if you lose, what is it? And I don't have a good answer for that. I'm with you. Now, when you say at every level, that is above the general manager as well? Like you're talking about everything is on the table? Someone just said to me, anything could happen because the emotions are high right now. And like, I'll say this, you have to make your decisions quick. Someone said to me, we're already in the second week of May. Mm -hmm. The draft is seven weeks away. People don't like to wait that long. So you're going to have a situation where you're going to want to decompress because you shouldn't make decisions when you're emotional, but there's really not a lot of time. And one thing someone said to me is we're talking about Pittsburgh here and, and the belief that Pittsburgh's willing to wait a little bit. So someone said to me on Tuesday, they're not willing to wait that long. So I think the biggest thing is how long do they decide to take a deep breath and then do what they need to do. But like I said, someone just said to me, anything could happen. What I would assume, though, here is when these conversations already have been had, if this happens, then we do this. I have a hard time believing that the people that will make this decision will wait for Wednesday and then start from ground zero. You know, I, I think you're not wrong but I think the sheer emotion and the pendulum swing from post game six in Tampa to where we are now, mm -hmm. I think has knocked everybody for a loop. Okay. What do we know now? Joseph wall is a starting goalie. Yep. Mark Giordano is the seventh defenseman or he's not playing the core four Matthews and Marner talked really defiantly. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously as leaders, you know, we uh, you know, want to be step up, be there for the team, and and uh, try to actually go out there, and compete, and, and lead by example. How do you deal with pressure at a time like this? Just go out there and play hockey. I mean, that's what we've uh, done, been doing our whole life. You know, can't really focus too much on the outside noise, what you guys are saying, what everybody's saying. I mean, it doesn't really matter. All we can focus on is uh, how we approach this game and uh, the mental side of it, uh, and coming in with a purpose and focusing on uh, just one game here coming in. When you talk about I mean, how much is it just thinking one game at a time and then you hear all that and kind of block out what the whole non-contest here is? I mean, yeah, I think I heard Austin say it, and, um, you know, I think we've been saying it this whole time. I mean, we don't care what you guys say. We don't listen to you guys outside of this locker room. Uh, we're just focused on ourselves and uh, this group in here. How much do you admit you, Austin, John? I don't have a problem with that. Like, those guys should be mad. But what they have to do is that they have to channel it in the proper way. Like, the thing that I really think from Toronto is, like, they know what's at stake here, those players. And we're going to find out, do they want to stay together? Because if they want to stay together, if they lose, they go down hard. They say, guys, you know, if we're going to go down, 
we go down with an effort that people say they competed. Mm-hmm. If they go down mildly, they answer the questions for all of us. Wednesday could be wild, folks. Uh, Wednesday could be wild. Okay, Elliot, before we get to Tuesday's games, let's back up to a game that we haven't talked about yet, and that is the Vegas Golden Knights and the Edmonton Oilers Monday night, Game 3, a convincing win by the Vegas Golden Knights. And a redirection by Stevenson, who gets up the ice in a hurry. Great skater. And for Stevenson, doesn't try and do too much with this puck. Just get a piece of it, change the direction, and it finds its way through Jack Campbell and into the net. 5-1 Vegas. And for the Golden Knights, team that was first in the Pacific, first in the West, fourth overall in the NHL, you knew they weren't going to wilt away easily, and Bruce Cassidy wanted to push back. He's gotten that here so far. A lot of time left, though, in this one. Man, this has been some wild playoffs in the second round with uh, with some scores. This one ends up 5-1. to one. Jonathan Marchessault with a pair of goals. Um, Laurent Bossois with the injury. Jack Eichel with a command performance. What stands out to you from game three between these squads, Vegas grabbing a two to one series lead? I think the thing that stood out to me are two things. Number one, Aiden Hill. I felt terrible for Brossois, just awful. Guy came back from an awful lot. And, you know, fate is a cruel mistress, Jeff. Mm. And he deserved a better fate than that. But Aiden Hill, I thought, came in. He immediately got a tricky save right away. And then I just don't think Edmonton tested him enough. Like, they came out really hot. Dreisaitl hit one post. Brassois made a couple of great saves. And then immediately they got a good chance on Hill. And I was like, okay, they're going to really challenge this guy who's still pretty cold. And it just never happened. You know, Vegas, a lot of credit. They shut down the Oilers' attack. The five-on-five thing really worries me for Edmonton right now. You cannot expect to win on the power play all the time in the playoffs. And, you know, you get a night and you say, oh, we should have got more power plays. You know what? You're just going to get nights where you don't get a lot of calls. And you have to be able to win on games where that's the case. And that was a night where they had no chance without it. You can't have that. Further to amplify what he's saying is we've seen teams before and we haven't really seen it with Edmonton, mainly because they haven't had to play like this. But I mean, Elliot, how many games have you seen where teams say, you know what, five on five, we're going to play 50-50 puck here and we're going to take our chances on on our power play. Yeah. And that's going to be our thought going into this one. Edmonton's never had to play like that. It's weird. It's almost as if they need like the sugar rush of a power play to get into the game. And they need the candy early in order to get themselves into the game. So they don't really look comfortable saying we need to play 50-50 puck and, and wait for our power play chances here. That is that is not a comfort zone for them, I notice. You know, as a guy who really appreciates the sugar rush of a good piece of candy, <laughs> I really like that analogy, Jeff. Well, you've been talking about like chocolate cake and 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 oh, and, and, and sugar and uh, syrup and all. Somebody kinds of stuff. was really busting me about how well I knew the Dairy Queen menu too. Like, <laughs> I, I, people are just all over me for this. <laughs> and the Skinner thing, like the Skinner thing, is concerning me right now because I thought this was over. Yeah. He had a really nice game too, but he got pulled again. And I think Skinner's your guy. But you know what else is really concerning me, Jeff? I had a conversation with a coach. And he said, it's easy to talk about someone else's team like this because he doesn't even know if he would do it on his team. 
Like Woodcroft is going to be loyal to Bouchard. He's going to be loyal to Nurse. And, you know, that's kind of the way it is. But he said if he was looking at it from a purely cold-hearted way, he would try to bump those guys down in the lineup. And I said, like, how do you do that? And he said, it's, it's not easy, but you play at home a ton and you rotate his partners and you try to avoid putting those guys up against the best players because they can't handle it right now. And I said, that's a really tough one. And he said, and like I said, he admitted on his own team, he didn't know if he would be able to do that. But yeah. looking at another team, he'd be thinking that would be the, the ruthless playoff thing he would have to do. Did you tell him that's what we do in media? We talk a lot of crap from the back seat. Yes, yes. Have any hands on the wheel? That that's our job, not his. I, I said you'll be perfect on the panel. That's very good, <laughs> Jeff. I should have said that to him. But you know, like he says that they've got a real problem there. Like those guys are are struggling quite a bit. And when your goalie's struggling, you can't have your defense struggling, especially your top pairs. It's a recipe for disaster. Uh, do you have concerns about Evander Kane doing what we saw in that game at the end of the first period, namely charging at Alex Petrangelo with a second left? Well, I like that the Golden Knights responded to the challenge of their coach and who said they were not a team. They like He used the Anthony Stewart line, you're a club, not a team in game two. Well, in game two, they were a team. Four guys went right to Kane. Look, I, I'm sure Kane, he drove them crazy in game two. He was trying to do the same thing again. I'm sure that Woodcroft will talk to him about, you got to pick your spots better or else we're in trouble. Game four between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Edmonton Oilers goes Wednesday. Quick break. We're back to talk about the Hurricanes and the Devils. Hurricanes putting up six. And the Dallas Stars and the Seattle Kraken. Dallas putting up six. That's next. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Elliot, Tuesday night, sixes were wild for the victorious teams. The Carolina Hurricanes 6-1 over the New Jersey Devils. Let's see the Dallas Stars 6-3 over the Seattle Kraken. Before we get to the late game, let's face off with the early 6-1. This was a game that was never really in doubt. And this was a game where, you know, it's always interesting hearing the coaches after blowout losses. Sunday, Rod Brindamore did not mince words after his team fell 8-4 to at the hands of the New Jersey Devils. And Lindy Ruff was equally despondent and I would argue disgusted as well at his team's effort. Uh, can you explain what turned around there in the second period? That is a hard one to explain. That's about as poorly we've skated and supported the puck in any game this year. You know, I thought McLeod line gave us good shifts with puck support and hard to give up a goal late in a period. But can't let that bother you. Got to keep playing. Did that goal kind of deflate the team? No chance. Can't let one goal deflate a team. Brett Pesci finds the back of the net. Your guy, Brent Burns, finds the back of the net as well. We'll flip this back into the New Jersey end where Jesper Faust gets to it. Jesper Faust scoring his fourth goal of the postseason, putting Carolina up for one. Make it 5-1. Brent Burns, top of the right circle. Hammers it past Vanacek. 
Freddie Anderson with the win. Vitek Vanacek with the loss. Carolina now have pushed the New Jersey Devils to the brink of elimination. They lead this series 3-1. to one. Jordan Martinuk. You didn't mention Jordan Martinuk. And also, not only did Jordan Martinuk score that goal at the end of the second period, but feathered a gorgeous pass to Martin Natchez for one of his two. Two and a half to go in the first. One nothing Devils lead on a goal by Jack Hughes as the crowd trying to cut it. Here's Martinuk coming down. Martinuk in five scores! What a play and what a redirect by Natchez to tip it home. And we're tied at one. Well, you got a one-goal lead at home, and in the last two or three shifts, I mentioned it's been getting a bit soft with the play of New Jersey and some of their passing and choices of plays, and the management just not good. Here's a turnover by McLeod in the neutral zone, and the transition catches everybody out of the corner because Luke Hughes, who was in the corner, who started the play, is not back into the middle of the ice yet. It's incredible. He had no points in the first series, and now he's a top-ten scorer in the playoffs. How do you describe your role on this team? Just energy, energy, energy. That's that's what I try and bring. I'm, I'm. It's not uh, not sexy. It's just go go out and work. And I think that's kind of the the mindset of our team. So I fit in well here. Well, you now have four straight multi-point games. Nine points in the series. We thought you had ten. They took away one of your assists. If I told you that going in, what would you have said? Uh, I, as long as if we were up three-one, that's what I would have been happy with. If I am contributing, great. Um, it feels good. But um, to be able to be up three-one going home, I think I would have taken that taken that over any amount of points. There's a stat out there. Mm-hmm. They they keep. I guess for a guy who had one or zero points in the first round, he's got the second most points ever in the next series. Only Lanny McDonald, who had 13 in a series in the 80s, wow. had more than him. Wow. Hats off to whoever came up with that one. That was the kind of recipe that Carolina wins with. Their D, like Kevin did a great job of showing how they absolutely shut them down at the blue line. They just stopped New Jersey in their tracks. They didn't let them enter the zone. Uh, one of the goals, I think the 1-1 one, one goal, was a Slavin made an incredible play with his stick and, and led to the counter that tied it. That was a Carolina clinic. You cannot call Brindamore a liar. He said they would be better, and they were. It was a, a very, very impressive win, and they owned them. After they got scored on, they own that game. I was a little surprised by Lindy Ruff's postgame comments, not because I necessarily think he's wrong, but just because I think the team's given it a really good ride. And when I heard Ruff and I listened to what he said, I kind of thought that, you know, maybe this was like a coach who's really loved this run. Like this year has been so much fun there for all those players in that team. Mm-hmm. Like they thought they'd be good, but they were good. And it's been so exciting. And I just wondered watching Ruff if he thinks it's coming to an end. Uh, Lindy, in, in the locker room afterward, Nico was talking about how the team didn't have enough pushback. Were you surprised that, that the effort there? We, went- we did not. I, I'm just telling you, I don't know what team should, where we went. We didn't skate. We didn't support. Um, our defense didn't move their feet trying to leave the zone. All the things that we did so well the previous game. 
we would go D to D. You look at the goal, even go D to D. We don't move our feet. We don't go north. We, we go east-west. We go D to D back to D, which usually means death. There's, there's not a lot I can say about I mean, tonight was probably as disappointed I am of a game I've, you know, a crucial game. Uh, with the way we skated and the way, I'll just say it again, the, they they kind of flipped it. They competed harder in pucks. They won more battles than we did. We got on the wrong side of the puck. You look at the second goal. Our defense coming back on the wrong side of the wrong side of his man. Let a guy walk in. Uh, so wrong side of the puck, wrong side of the man. Come back to our end. We don't stop. We circle away we give him a shot right from the slot um stuff that's not typical for our club they got in trouble against the rangers they came back and won the series but he always seemed confident to me mm-hmm. this was the first time i watched him in the post game and i said i'm not sure that lindy ruff thinks they can win this and that's painful so maybe i'm overthinking it jeff that's what i saw now, I am really curious to see what they're going to do for game five and goal. Mm-hmm. If it was me, I would play Schmid. I think he's been your best goalie in the playoffs, and I go down with my best goalie. But as you know, I've had this nagging suspicion that we could see Blackwood. We'll see what he does. He never tips his hand. I do Schmid. But it wouldn't shock me if we saw Blackwood. Listen, this is closeout here. This is desperation. And the moments that sealed it, I mean, this was pretty obvious. I mean, there was a point in this game where Carolina scored four goals in five minutes. And the New Jersey Devils just couldn't stop it. Yeah. No matter what they did, no matter what they tried, they could not turn the tap off. It was just speed bag. They were just getting speed bagged um, by the Carolina Hurricanes. And impressively enough, too, and I, I always remark on this when when Carolina puts up a six spot, um, which they're able to do seemingly at will sometimes. You know, no Svechnikov, no Pacioretty, no Teravainen, and still this team scoring at will at times and scoring suddenly and often. Like that five-minute stretch You know, like someone would score, I'd duck my head down to write a quick note about it for the podcast. I'd look up again and there's another celebration. Yeah. I really felt for Lindy Ruff because I know I'm I'm with you and he's been like Lindy Ruff has been through a lot this season with the New Jersey Devils. Yes. From the beginning with the chance and then the fun with the apology and the winning streak and and all of it and fighting tooth and nail right down to the very end of the season with the Hurricanes dropping a pair to the Rangers, getting blown out in their first two playoff games and then storming back to, to beat the Rangers in the Battle of the Hudson. It's been an emotional year. A really emotional year for Lindy Ruff, so I can really feel for the guy after, you know, listening to him post game. By the way, Jeff, on the Blackwood thing, PK Subban mentioned on ESPN the night before Game uh, Four that he thought it might be Blackwood, and someone said to me, "Did PK ask you about what you said?" And my response was, "Do you think PK Subban listens to a word I say?" No. We shall see who's in the starters nets. Dallas Stars and Seattle Kraken. 
Uh, and this was very much Dallas's night, although late, uh, Jaden Schwartz and Adam Larson tried to make a game of it, got the game within two pucks, but then Max Domi with the empty netter. Max Domi had a really good game, two goals and one assist, and was yes, excellent. Was good all night long. Kiviranta and his return to the lineup has an assist on the Harley goal here in this period. Harley on the left wing side, got it down into the corner. Crowd making some noise here at Climate Pledge Arena. Final game in Seattle before things shift back to Dallas Thursday night. Here is Harley slicing in, feeding it Hanley to the left side. Space for Domi from the dot shot. He scores! There's going to be a major complaint on the Kraken side as Grubauer was bumped into. He was signaling to their bench uh, as the puck was coming off the back of the net and back out in front again. I don't know. For now, Domi appears to have made it 3-0. It's another great play by Thomas Harley with his legs. And Grubauer is well out of his crease. And Jamie Benn might have been shoved by Susie a little bit too. But no question he was draped all over their netminder. What did you think of the, the Domi goal? Did you agree with the review or not? You know, I thought Dave Jackson did a really good job explaining that about how uh, how that was incidental contact, and I agreed with him. I thought it was fine. It was outside of the crease, and Jamie Ben has the right to that ice at that moment. I had no problem with the call. Did you not like it? I had no good feel for it. Like it's not that I liked or didn't like it. Like generally, I look at these and I have an idea of how I feel. I had no feel for this one. Because I actually thought Grubauer was in the crease. He wasn't, though. Yes, he was. Wait, hang on. With the skate, he was. Yes. With the skate, he was in the crease. But then when the moment of, of contact with the glove occurred on the shot that pulled him off of his line, that was outside the crease. And you know what my rule is and what, what Bettman's rule to the league is. You better have a freaking good reason for taking a goal off the board. I think they thought Grubauer embellished. And that's why they hmm. they gave it to him. But I admit, like that one, I did not have a good feel for that one. The Dallas Stars tie the series up at twos, heading back to Dallas. 6-3 is the final. We wondered about Jake Ottinger, but I'll tell you, again, coming out of this one. Better. Better. I know. Wasn't really tested. There wasn't the volume of shots to, to come up with a consensus on how Ottinger is right now. To me, the star of the whole thing was was Miro Haskinen. Yes. 31 minutes and two seconds of ice. He played over half the game. If every time you looked up, you saw Miro Haskinen and you said to yourself, geez, what's this guy doing playing half the game? Yeah, you're right. Good call. He played half the game and more, Elliot. Yeah, Haskinen, and this is why like really intelligent reporters put him in the top three of their Norris voting. <laughs> I said on the, on the Monday pod, I, I thought it was likely he was going to play, and, and he did. And, and, you know, one of the things, I don't know how many people saw the broadcast, but Kevin talked about how there were times he was supposed to wear the bubble. a full visor, and he refused to do it because he didn't think he could play properly with it. And Kevin said his mother would call him and his wife would call him and the trainer would say, you can't play without it. And he would tell them all to get lost because he didn't think he could play properly with it. And I wouldn't make fun of Kevin about that because I know if I was good enough to play in the NHL, 
I would probably try to do the same thing. Like, obviously, when I was a kid, I played with a visor, a full visor, and there were times I got the opportunity to play without one, and it was very hard for me to go back and wear one. So I would probably try to do the same thing. Now, the thing that struck me about Hayeskin was not only how good he was, but the level of intelligence he showed, too. And I'm not saying that generally I think Hayeskin's not a bright guy. But go back and watch that game and saw how many times he avoided contact. Like, there were times he turned away from hits. There were other times he could have initiated hits, and he just didn't do it. He minimized the contact on himself. And I think that's so important and so intelligent for what he needs to do. It wasn't only the fact that he showed up and was as good as he was and played 30 minutes, as you said, Jeff. It's that also he played a highly intelligent game where he didn't force body contact or take body contact unless he absolutely had to. And a guy like Slavin was always the guy. He deserves more attention, deserves more attention, deserves more attention. Yep. Haskinen is that guy. He he is criminally, criminally underrated in hockey circles. In Dallas, uh, I think you were in Vancouver at that point. Uh, I sat down with Max Domi. And I asked him, I said, you know, who's the guy that you knew was good, but you had no idea he was that good until you got to Dallas and you saw him practice and you're on his team. And without missing a beat, Miro Heiskanen. The other guy that I didn't get to talk to on that last question you asked was uh, Miro Heiskanen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> honestly, like I knew how good this guy was, just especially from playing against him a little bit. Sure. Uh, when I was in Columbus, we had the same division with um, the shortened season in the bubble and all yeah. that stuff. So I played against him quite a bit, and I was like, man, this guy is so smooth. He's unbelievable. But now playing with him, like you see him plays 30 minutes a night, He's the best player on the ice every single game. It's absolutely absurd. I mean, you see McDavid get the puck and, and take off through through the neutral zone. There's really no one that can keep up with Connor. Everyone knows that. Yeah. And, and there was a play where I just saw Miro take two strides, and he just kind of kept his stick right there. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that is that is absurd. And and honestly, everything he does, he he just he yeah. makes so many incredible plays, and he makes everyone around him better. And we're very lucky to have him here. I think he's one of my favorite players to watch, and definitely to play with. So he's uh, he's unbelievable. So no surprise there. Hey, one thing, I continue to be impressed with Yanni Gord. I know it's a losing cause. And listen, Jaden Schwartz with a pair, he was really good. Adam Larson makes it to five to three in this one. But there's a, a moment, again, I just love Yanni Gord. There's a moment right after Jaden Schwartz scored to make it five to two. Yeah. And Yanni Gord is standing right beside Ottinger. And as Ottinger is getting up from surrendering the goal by Schwartz, Gord gets in his face. I, obviously, I have no idea what he said to him. I'm sure it wasn't, hey, you know, wife and I are having a barbecue this weekend. Why don't you and the family come aboard? Like, I, uh, I'm i pretty sure it wasn't very nice, but it was more of that playoff intense Yanni Gord. It's a goal that makes it 5-2, and Yanni Gord gets a chance to get in Jake Ottinger's grill, and he takes it. It's one of those tiny little things that... You know, you, you kind of notice in a playoff series, if it's a Tuesday night and in Dallas, you know, uh, short scores, Gord probably just, you know, peels off and, and goes to the celebration circle. But in this case, he stands there to bark at Ottinger. 
I just love stuff like that for each. I know it's tiny <laughs> and it's trivial, but I'm tiny and trivial. So I just loved it. And I wanted to get Yanni Gord on the podcast because I've just continued to be impressed with him uh, in these playoffs. Do you have a final thought on, on this game here? couple of things. They put Jason Robertson on the ice with the empty net. Got to get him going. And he had a chance to score, and he didn't. They desperately need him. He just needs one. Like, he had that breakaway in the first period, and the guy scored 87 goals in the last two regular seasons. In a regular season, he buries that. He needs, like, who scored the ass goal for Florida in Game 3 against Toronto? Jason Robertson needs an ass goal. He just needs something to go in for him. Is that Carter Verhage? Yes, I think you're right. I think it was Verhage. Okay. Like, Robertson needs that. He needs an ass goal. The other thing I thought was interesting was Jared McCann. Jared McCann didn't have an overly noticeable game, but that's the game where you get him in there to get his feet wet for the end of the series. This is now a 2-2 series. We're going at least six. And nobody's going to be surprised if you're going seven. That was the get his feet wet game for Jared McCann, who, by the way, showed up in a great hat. <laughs> the fact that he got that game, he'll be better in five and six and seven. That was important. The one game one I always remember was 2006 Stanley Cup final. Eric Cole, badly injured during the regular season. We think he's out for the year. He shows up game six in Edmonton to play. And he wasn't great because he hadn't played in months. Mm -hmm. But then he was ready to go for game seven and Carolina won the cup and he was better. I've always remembered that. I look for get your feet wet games. That was McCann's. He'll be a lot better for getting this one in at this point in the series. This series now best two out of three. The venue shifts to Dallas. Game Five on Thursday. Okay, Elliot, we'll finish up the uh, the podcast tonight with uh, with the news of the day and the speculation of the day and the wonderings of the day. And how much do you wonder about Mike Babcock and the New York Rangers as they're coaching search gets underway here there's been a lot of rumors about could the rangers get mike sullivan is is mike sullivan a realistic possibility here i think that's the rangers dream you know some of us have like dreams right jeff like you go to bed at night and you dream about scoring the winning goal in overtime of game seven of the stanley cup final <laughs> or Zendaya breaks up her relationship with Tom <laughs> Holland to go out with you or, you know, something no. like that. You know what I dream about, Elliot? What's that? What's that? I dream about being able to sleep more than four hours a night, but it's the Stanley Cup playoffs, so I know I won't. That's the level of my dreams right now. I have a dream that I will not hear my iPhone go off at, uh, at 6 o'clock or 6.15. That's what I dream about. You know what your problem is? You wake up too early. That's your own fault. <laughs> I do enjoy being up early. I believe the Rangers' dream for coaching is Mike Sullivan. I, like mm -hmm. All these rumors coming out, like, what's the possibility of this? What's the possibility of that? I think that's the guy the Rangers would love to have. The problem is, he just got an extension in Pittsburgh. Yep. And basically, 
you know, they sided with Sullivan in a battle with Ron Hextall about personnel and things like that. Look, one thing I've learned, Jeff, crazy stuff happens in sports. Things happen, and you're like, holy smokes, I did not see that coming. As a matter of fact, you could say, holy smokes, I saw the exact opposite of that happening. So could it happen? Sure. I would be really shocked if it happened. I don't see that. I don't think Sullivan necessarily is available. I, I do wonder if Babcock is on their radar. I think one of the things here is it's hard to see the Rangers going new. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't fit their MO. It doesn't mean they shouldn't go new. It's just that their MO is not to do that. And so if Sullivan is not available, who else kind of fits the bill? You know, Babcock is Washington went pretty far down the road with him when they hired Peter Laviolette. I have some suspicion, although I'm never going to find out because it's not the kind of thing he would ever admit. But I, I, I would think that Detroit at least thought about the possibility of it last year before they hired panelist extraordinaire Derek Lalonde. So I think, <laughs> I think teams have considered it. Mm -hmm. Nobody has necessarily taken the step. I'm wondering how much the Rangers are going to consider this. I, I think he's someone who's who's on their radar. You think Chris Drury might look at a former teammate? Which one are we talking about here? Patrick Waugh? The goaltender currently coaching the Quebec Ramparts in the QMJHL final against Halifax? It wouldn't surprise me. Like, Waugh also has the personality to handle that. Mm -hmm. It would surprise me if he didn't at least look at it, for sure. Some bad news. Um, Gabriel Landeskog. This was just, yeah, this one was just crushing. You know, you, you feel for the player, cartilage transplant in his right knee. The surgery is today. He'll miss the entire 23, 24 season. Uh, I know sometimes we joke about it a lot, but like legitimately, he's my favorite player in the NHL. Like I just think yes. selfishly, this one just sucks. I just hate it. Uh, this will be two years without seeing Gabriel Landeskog. You wish him all the best with the surgery and everything uh, that happens after. And we cross our fingers and say, hopefully at the end of all of this for 2025, we have a favorite for the Masterton trophy, which means that he's healthy enough to come back. A couple of things, your thoughts on Landeskog and your thoughts on the avalanche now with a little bit of salary cap certainty for next season. First of all, I can't believe you're so openly cheating on Daniel Sprong. Like, it, it's not right. Like, be, be discreet. <laughs> Sorry you had to fight out like this, Daniel. I'm with you on Lannis Gog. You know, I, I saw Mark Mathot's tweets about yeah, I saw that. how he had that and, he, you know, he couldn't come back. And I and I hope for Lannis Gog's sake that he beats those odds. You know, he, he's obviously done a lot of research. You heard him talk about Lonzo Ball and other players like the research he's done you know i love what you know what i love most about him and actually kelly rudy talked about this behind the scenes on tuesday night is his attitude i mean like i said back in april you know at that point we come to the conclusion that coming back and playing in the playoffs wasn't wasn't an option and, and wasn't going to be something we could do uh we continued exploring and and uh done more studying in the last month than I have since since high school. So uh, extensive research on my end, and and with the help of our 
medical staff on the team and, and uh, I've talked to numerous doctors and medical experts and, and uh, getting opinions, learning more about what the different procedures would be. And this is the one that we feel like is the best, best way forward and the best solution for me to come back and play hockey again. So it's been, it's been a process, but I feel confident in, in the decision and I'm excited to get going and excited to, to, to have the first step out of the way tomorrow morning. Like he looks positive as he always does. And he won't let retirement even be part of the conversation. Like, I, I think if you're going to be successful, you have to have that mindset until there's no other option. Like he clearly wants to play. He doesn't want to just be a guy who goes on IR and collects a check for the next few years. Nope. He wants to play. And if that's your goal, you have to be single-minded of purpose. And I love Landis Gog for that. You know, I, I talked with you on your show on, on Tuesday about how, you know, the word is that whatever damage kind of created like a hole underneath his knee, the fact that he's getting a transplant seems to indicate that something like that is the case. As for the avalanche, I think they've tried to sign Byron before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, McKinnon's extension kicks in. Um, they do get the LTIR relief of Landeskog, although it's trickier in the offseason. Offseason LTIR is trickier. Yeah. But to me, the big question is, what is Byram's number going to be? Because I think they've tried to sign him. Colorado is proactive about this stuff. They try to get guys done. So what that says to me is, so far, they haven't been able to find a number that fits. So, you know, th that to me is the big one. How do you get a deal done with Byram and then where are you going from there? There's a couple of other decisions for, we've talked about this before, whether it's JT Confer, who's a pending unrestricted free agent. Uh, there's Alex Newhook, who's a free agent, albeit a restricted uh, free agent here. So I, I keep coming back to this idea that at, at least, and again, I'm with you, we'll see what the Bowen Byram numbers at here. At least they, the Avalanche at least have a better handle on what they can do with their cap. They were a little bit frozen this year, not really knowing 100% when Landis Gog was going to come back, if he was going to come back, because we were on under the belief that he's going to come back before the playoffs. Yeah this year and then it was maybe sometime during the playoffs and then shut down and now we find out this news philadelphia flyers and their search are we getting closer to having uh, a new president of hockey operations and are we any closer to having an interim tag removed i think briere's interim tag is going to be removed soon i just think the president's search is coming to a close too you know look philly at the beginning of this search it was a little bit sloppy some things got out and you know, one of the tricky things was, was it an interview? Was it a conversation? Since then, I tip my cap to them. They've done a better job at, at keeping it quiet. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, I don't like it either. I don't like when people act professionally around us. Yes, I, I like unprofessional <laughs> behavior, Jeff. I have heard that people have kind of been told that Briere is going to have huge power in the hockey decision-making part of this job. I think there's at least one candidate who wasn't crazy about whatever role it was going to be mm -hmm. because Briere was going to have the power. So I think it's going to be somebody who's there, uh, whether it's a hockey person or a non-hockey person, 
I think they're taking the job knowing that that's the case. You know, one other guy who I kind of wonder about, and I don't know that he's a finalist or anything like that, but may have been interviewed here is Keith Jones. Oh yeah. And uh, I think that's a really interesting name. Again, I don't know that he's a finalist here or anything like that, but that was a name that somebody mentioned to me today as someone who they thought at least at one time was in the mix and somebody that Philly was considering talking about. And, you know, like, I mean, depending on what Philly wanted to do here, like Keith Jones, if you need somebody who's a public face, like, you know, who dislikes Keith Jones? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. That would be a, a, a really solid choice, as would be Ed Olchuk, who, yes or no, we should also keep top of mind when thinking about the Flyers situation. I've heard Olchuk's name for sure. It's just hard to handicap mm-hmm. on this Wednesday night, Wednesday morning slash Tuesday night. In addition to people like Jones and Olchuk, they've definitely talked about uh, others who have kind of been in front offices for a while, who've seen the way things work, that can kind of be with Briere to say, okay, here's how we've handled this situation in the past. Just people who've been around. And for that reason, I wouldn't count out the likes of a Doug Wilson or a Scott Mellonby. I think that's also been on Philly's radar. I think they are specifically talking to one maybe another person about what the contract could look like. Okay, listen, I, I know it's late. It's uh, it's 1.30 a.m. and you've got to get your, you know, University of Western Mustangs pajamas on all purpley and get yeah. into bed and get into the wrapper and get your head on your pillow. But a couple of more things before you get into your purple. Yeah, all good. Um, Calgary Flames and their searches, GM and coach. Nothing much on coach yet. I think they've got a bigger group that they're going through right now, and we're probably within a couple days or so of them cutting down that number Mm -hmm. and then going into the second uh, round of their interviews. A couple more things quick. Marty Walsh, the executive director of the NHL Players Association, you know, when he first took the job, it was all about, okay, I got to meet the players. I got to get to know these guys. I got to do the tours. I got to talk to the commissioner. And it sounds like now he's meeting with the agents. What's the latest? There are three agents meetings set up. Uh, One of them was on Monday in New York. The other one will be today in Los Angeles. And the final one is next week in Toronto. From what I've heard, it's unlikely the cap is going to go up more than a million dollars. It's being reiterated throughout that the players are not willing to move on the escrow caps. And and he understands that. Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely some talk about Arizona. And, you know, they obviously what happens next week. And, you know, I'll just say this about Arizona. There's a lot of people guessing. I think if we've learned anything when it comes to politics in the last few years. Don't. Is that. Don't. Don't guess. I always remember Margaret Thatcher's line, which was, it doesn't matter what people think about you a month before the election or a week before the election or a day before the election. It's what they think about you when they step into the ballot box. So I don't read any stories about it. I don't listen to people who are for it or against it because I think it distorts. I think polling now is such an inexact science because so many people don't answer their phones. The world is so skewed to one viewpoint or another. So, you know, we'll see what happens next week with the vote. I definitely feel that one way or the other, the players want some clarity on Arizona 
But those seem to be like the two uh, hot button topics. You know, Walsh is a quietly confident guy in how he presents himself. Apparently, the other guy who does some talking there is Ron Hainsey, and nobody's got more swagger than Ron Hainsey. So I guess they make quite a, quite a pair. That's quite a show to take on the road. <laughs> okay, finish up with a couple of things here. Two things, draft lottery night, and yeah. Connor Bedard goes to the Chicago Blackhawks. Before we get to Bedard, draft lottery night, like you don't go through a career like we have without making mistakes. And when we make mistakes, it's in front of people. So I've done it before. I've made mistakes. I felt really bad for Kevin Weeks. I felt really bad for Kevin. Jeff, I'm with you. I've been a worldwide punching bag before. I know what that's like. I felt terrible for him. I won't make any fun of him. No. I don't like other reporters who do. I feel really bad for him. And that's all I'll say about that. Being someone who's been in that position before, I wouldn't wish it on other people. And I hate to see it. You know, I wanted to actually just talk about that a little bit because a friend of mine called me and he said, like, why didn't you guys react to that on air? Like you guys acted on air like that didn't even happen. And, you know, I said, you know what? That's actually a really good question. I, I explained it to him. And he said, you should explain this on your pod because I didn't know all this. So I figured I would. So people think we know the results of the lottery beforehand. We don't. You know, they they do the lottery about an hour to an hour and a half before it airs. And, you know, the league always puts the video out. And there were three reporters, Aaron Portsline, Stephen Wino, and Frank Saravelli, who were embedded in the room and, You know, I would encourage you to read their stories. Obviously, Kevin uh, knew what happened. Like, I think there's a small group of people in and around the studio who know. But we don't know. Like, in the studio, doing it live on Sportsnet with Dave and Kelly and Kevin, we don't know who wins. And so when that happened, you know, we went to the commercial break. And initially, I wasn't sure what was said. And then, like our producer, David Azuma, he told us what had happened. And we were sitting here saying, okay, what do we do about this when we come back? And it was actually my suggestion. I said, don't do anything. And people were like, why? And I said, do we know that he's right? And nobody in the studio knew that what he'd said was correct. So I said, guys, the worst thing we can do is react to it. And then it turns out that that was some kind of slip up that the wrong thing was given to him or the wrong thing was put in the prompter or the wrong thing was said in his earpiece. So the reason we didn't react on air was we didn't know for sure that that was right. And I just said, we can't react to it if we don't know for sure in Canada like I said, my buddy called me and says, why didn't you guys react to that? I said, because we didn't know it was correct. You know, the one thing is that I think when we make mistakes, we're a lot tougher on us than a lot of other people are on us and, and people will move on. That's life and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in the moment, like Jeff, we did, we just said we better not pay attention to it because we didn't know for sure if that was correct or you know not. i've i've made the joke before and it it really is true in a situation like that you're you're not sure and you're not going to get uh, any confirmation at that point and you know you've heard this one out of me probably a million times by now 
the old journalist creed. If your mother says she loves you, get confirmation. <laughs> yeah. That's the way you kind of got to gotta exist. So Elliot, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't surprised at all. I wasn't surprised at all that that was, that, that was our studio's reaction to it. Jeff, when it comes to reaction to the overall lottery results, I was shocked. I can't tell you how many people around the league who I consider to be very smart people were convinced that it was rigged. Like I know like people go on the internet and they're all mad. They, and, and, you know, unfortunately with what happened, they're like rigged, rigged, this was fixed, this was fixed. And again, it fans are fans. I don't really have any problem with that. People react very emotionally, but like people in the league were like on teams and stuff were like, this is rigged. I'm like, guys, come on. Like, it's I not- listen, I had the same thing because yeah. I've thought about this a lot. At the end of, of every lottery, everybody, unless uh, outside of the team that wins, is sour grapes. And I understand that in years gone past, they just lose and they're petulant about it. Now they have something to point towards to sort of justify their little toddler tantrums Mm -hmm. that they didn't win. And it's a lot easier to say it's fixed as opposed to I lost. That's how I looked at it because I had the exact same experiences that you had talking to people. And I'm like, are you insane? Like, do you think this accounting firm is going to risk their reputation (laughs) to help Gary Bettman maneuver Connor Bedard to one of the one of uh, one of the NHL's biggest markets not a chance but I just looked at it like now they have a target to articulate rage so they don't just sound like toddlers who you know had had a toy taken away from them that's how I looked at it and lottery conspiracies go back to 1985 like David Stern and the dry ice envelope with frozen envelope out of out of Georgetown to the New York Knicks and, you know, the idea that Bedard ends up in a big market team that, look, I get why fans say these things. Fans are fans, but I don't believe for a second it's rigged. I just don't. And my reaction to Bedard going to Chicago was probably the same as a lot of others. You know, I'm really happy for Luke Richardson. Same. So badly he wanted an NHL head coaching job. And when he got that job, he knew that, you know, he knew it was built to lose. And the odds were really stacked against uh, him being successful there. And now all of a sudden, this generational player ends up on his lap. I'm, I'm very happy for Richardson. I don't mind the reaction of the Blackhawk fans. Fans are fans, and that's the way they're going to react. But I think it's important to recognize that uh, not everybody feels this way. You know, for some families out there, it's probably very painful. You know, I just think it's important to recognize that on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And I understand. I I do. I feel same. I think there are a lot of people that were, and rightfully so, legitimately upset that it seems like, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the Blackhawks and Kyle Beach. And now all of a sudden they get rewarded with with a crown jewel and one of the best prospects to come along in in quite some time. I, I understand how it's upsetting. I think a lot of us, myself included, thought the punishment should have been more severe. And I think a lot of people thought that the Blackhawks shouldn't be even in this place to be part of this uh, this lottery for Connor Bedard. Here's what I want to ask you about the Blackhawks now. They have around $41 million worth of cap space to play with, according to Cap Friendly, for next season. Now, it's not the most robust free agent class, but this is an organization that has a lot of 
draft capital that they can turn into player capital. What do you think that Kyle Davidson does now around Connor Bedard? Because as you all know, and everybody knows, every move he makes will be to service Connor Bedard and his career with the Hawks. I think it's still a little bit too hard to say. Like, because the thing is, this doesn't, while this changes the course of direction for the franchise, it doesn't change how successful it is prepared to be. This is going to need a lot of work. Like, oh, yeah. You know, remember Sidney Crosby starting in Pittsburgh. Remember Alexander Ovechkin starting in Washington. Remember Mario Lemieux starting in Pittsburgh. Oh, boy. Connor McDavid in Edmonton. If one player can rejuvenate your franchise and excite your fan base, and we're seeing it here, but, you know, one player can't win you a Stanley Cup. And, you know, the Chicago Blackhawks, does it accelerate it a little bit? Yeah, it does. But look at the roster. There is a lot of work that needs to be done here. This is not you going zero to whatever and drive to survive and trying to win an F1 race. Like you're still in the um uh, like the the NASCAR truck circuit right now. Like you're not ready to compete with the big boys. You know what this is is now though what I do think is is it puts you on the clock to you better make sure that your plan is good for getting players. Mm-hmm. The thing about the Blackhawks is they were under no real pressure to get good players quickly. Now they're under pressure to find good players quicker. They do have some really dynamic young players coming. Like, I, I think we're under the assumption that Kevin Korczynski is going to be on this roster next year. Yeah. After that, I'm not really sure how many, how many young kids they're, they're, they're going to move in right away. But, you know, this is an organization that has put a lot of good kids in the pipeline here. When this really starts to happen, not unlike what we've seen with the Buffalo Sabres, like the Chicago, and they've got someone that's now supercharged this rebuild. Like when it finally starts to come together, and I'm with you, this will not be in the first season, might not even be in the second season, but by the third season and some of these younger players and free agents and trades start to become part of the mix in Chicago. And I think trade deadline, by the way, next year is going to be a fascinating one for Kyle Davidson. I really, really do. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a team that gets better, maybe quicker than than they had imagined before lottery night. But now that they have Connor Bedard, everything is different. And here's what I think as well, my, my closing thought on, on what we saw on Monday and the effects of it. I can't help but think how thrilled Eastern Conference general managers are knowing that Connor Bedard and probably Adam Fantilli as well are going to the West and they don't have to deal with them. So wait a sec. Are you convinced that Fentilli is going to, I think that these, there is a strong, strong chance. Like it seems as if like there's a, there's a drop off after one and there's a drop off after two. I think if Mitchkoff were available to North America next season, there may be a conversation at two for Mitchkoff, but as it stands right now, it sounds very much like after Bernard, it's it's going to be Adam Fantilli. Leo Carlson might make it interesting, but I still think it's going to be Fantilli. My only other question about Bedard, who's he living with next year? Um, Luke Richardson. That's not a bad one. 
You know, Sydney lived with Mario. Yeah. Which I still wonder about for salary cap purposes, but that's for oh, another God. conversation, Elliot. <laughs> Merrick, that was 17 years ago. Let it go. Still bitter about that one, Elliot. Let it go. That is an excellent question. Uh, with that, we'll wrap up. Taking us out are twin brothers from Manchester, England. George and Henry make up the band The Flints. They got a spaced out psych pop sound with a touch of 70s disco. Love it. Uh, they've carved out a unique space for themselves in the UK with their unique sound. And from their latest EP, Keep the Party Going, here are The Flints with same things every day on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy. <laughs> 